from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th NG, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This week, we take a deep dive into trade. Uh, we are joined by Jim Lewis. He's a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. CSIS is what it's mostly referred to as. Uh, he's an expert in kind of lots of stuff, but um, we spent a lot of time talking about China and Russia and what the administration is doing or, or, or should do. Um, so if you're into trade and if you're into hot topics like uh, China 301, this is a good one for you. Okay, here you go. Jim Lewis. Jim Lewis, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you. Um, so before we start, tell me a little about your background. I know you've worked at State and Commerce, and you've kind of seen the world from a bunch of different lenses. I uh, always wanted to work at a think tank, and I thought, I don't want to be one of those people who does a job with ever, uh, without ever having had the direct experience. So I'll just go to the State Department for okay. five years. Fifteen years later. <laughs> Best laid plans, huh? Yeah, that's right. Um, so like any five-year plan, it took three iterations to get where you wanted to go. <laughs> so you've done a couple tours in, in government, and, yep. and uh, you know, you're at a think tank now, and, and you've become a bit of a expert in trade with a view to things on the you know internet related Mm -hmm. so how'd you get into this trade stuff and how did you you know kind of find your way into kind of studying the internet a bit uh i i think a lot of people who do this really like computers Mm -hmm. and so when i was you can cut this but when I was in <laughs> no, tell me eighth it. grade, <laughs> there's no in economics here. class, yeah. and I should have been paying attention to economics. But across the hall was the math club, and they had one of them, our computers, with a line printer that was printing out Mickey Mouse's face. Oh, yeah. Oh, I wanted to do that so much. <laughs> so that was it. And then in, in graduate school, they basically told me, you have to learn how to program a computer. So it was just, uh, and they had this thing called the internet. Yep. This was in the mid-80s. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um just like it, and uh, it turns out that, unsurprisingly, particularly 15 years ago, there weren't a lot of people in the any department other than maybe the defense department who knew a lot about this. So sure. I ended up being, in fact, the way this worked was I was walking down the hall. I worked for Dick Clark, Yep. and he was walking the other way, and he said, hey, you know how to <laughs> program computers, don't you? <laughs> I should have said no, but, so that's why I got into it. Um, well, you know, the trade the trade debate has changed a lot mm-hmm. over the last few years. Yep. You know, just before we get into some specifics, which I'll ask a bunch about, but you know, what's your sense on you know ten thousand feet? The trade debate kind of moving around. Well, people are unhappy and rightfully so with the role China is playing, and so I think tackling China is probably something we should have done years ago. Um, on the at the same time, you have to recognize that. This isn't going to be a Cold War. Economies are just too interconnected. We can't cut the Chinese out of our supply chain. They can't cut us out of their supply chain. So how do you make progress in the interconnected environment where parties don't necessarily trust each other? Yeah. 
it's it's interesting you mentioned the Cold War thing because I actually had a question written about mm-hmm. that. It kind of almost feels like we're we're headed down that road, which is you know, do mm-hmm. we have to make sure that our um, geeks are smarter than their geeks? In the that same way, nice. in yeah. the same way, we used to have to make sure right. that our missiles were better than the Russian right. missiles or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, a uh, couple big things happening yep. from the White House. Obviously, um, you mentioned China. We're going to come back to that. But NAFTA, Chorus, China. We've got Russia stuff. What's the thing you're following the most? What's the what's the what's well, the thing that's kind of most interesting to you at this point? I bounce back and forth between uh, Russia and uh, China because mm-hmm. I've always thought they were sort of the big games in town. And it depends on what the headlines are. Um, you know, one day it's Russia, and <laughs> the next day it's China. I think China's the longer-term game. I think China's the one that we need to pay the most attention to. Sure. But those are the two I focus on. And so with China, you know, President announced 301 actions against China. You, you know, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I think this is, from my the perspective of clients that I have and, you know, tech mm-hmm. companies and everything else, this is a little like, yeah, we have to do something. We're not exactly sure what we need to do. Please don't mess up our supply chains. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. And, uh, you know, I know sometimes people say, well, the administration wants to reduce the trade deficit. Um, beating up on the Chinese won't do that, right? But there are problems, and China has uh, state capitalism. Um, it's a pretty good model. They, they are not the Russians. Uh, they've thought about how to make it work. Uh, so they're a much more formidable competitor, and they don't play by the rules. Mm-hmm. So pushing back uh, is a good idea. The goal, though, is not to punish China. The goal is to get them to change their behavior, and sometimes that's not always clear in the debate. Yeah, It would also help if we recognized what century we were in. Um, <laughs> for me, although I love Westerns, uh, I think uh, steel, railroads, cattle are really important. They're not the core of the American economy today, so maybe a little, <laughs> little shift in focus. Yeah, and it's um, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking of this, and, and this is kind of maybe where I'll go next, which is, this China debate is becoming um, more and more and more difficult, I think, more and more complex as the global market just becomes what it is. So mm-hmm. if you're starting a company today, and, or I'm starting a company today, and I hire you and say, hey, what should we do about this? It's a huge market, tons of folks that can buy our products, help us make our products, all that stuff. How, how should we go about doing that? What would you tell you know, Startup it, X? It's a revenue decision. Yep. You know, It's a business decision. Are you going to... Uh, and the issue is always short-term game versus long-term loss. And most companies have now for about uh, 20 years gone with short-term gain. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why the Chinese economy is as strong as it is today. Is you can say, uh, in the next two or three quarters, I'm going to make uh, a lot more money than I would otherwise. Yes, I realize there's long-term risk, but I'll go with it. So that deal was acceptable to most people the terms have changed, and so it's less acceptable now. But if you're a new company, ask yourself, if I go and I compete in China, what are the chances that the Chinese are going to decide to put me out of business? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could look at the Uber experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the answer is it's a risk I can take, do it. Uh, if the answer is they're going to end up eating my global market, 
you probably want to think twice. Yeah, it does. It seems that way. And, and China thinks um, they have the longer term planning for this whole you know deal. Uh, the thing that I've heard most from clients and others is mm-hmm. that not only is it tariffs, but it's all these non-tariff barriers. So yeah. you know they'll change the rules on how you may have to make a laptop. I'm making this up, but they'll tell their in-house friends what that is, and then about you know, two months later, they'll tell everybody else. And I'm sure that, that that's the example that can probably be used elsewhere. Um, having said all that, the White House makes a really good point a lot of times in these meetings that I've been in where they say, look, we've done the same thing for the last X number of years and we haven't gotten anywhere. Right. So, so you know, maybe this 301 action or, or, or other actions that may come are, are, you know, the right way to go. What do, what do you think on that? No, I think that the... Chinese won't change their behavior without some kind of external pressure. So we absolutely have to do things like this in a controlled way. And one of the things that's funny is people tend to overreact whenever this administration does something, in part because their rhetoric tends to be so extreme. Mm -hmm. So you had mass hysteria about trade war. We've had it twice now. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. Um, The Chinese don't want to trade war any more than we do. Uh, But they will not. Their thing is, we've gotten away with this for three decades. Mm-hmm. Why should we change? Right. So you've got to put a little pressure on them if you're going to expect to see a different business environment for American companies. And it seems like the Obama administration and administrations before that with the TPP, their mm-hmm. thought was, let's try to isolate China um, yeah. theoretically to get the same result. Do you think that that's kind of where they were going? Or do you think that they were going in another way that was like you know, we're just going to make the rest of the market better. Well, part of it is that the China problem really has only become a problem uh, that can't be avoided in the last few years. Right? Because, Why is that? Because China was a small, poor economy mm-hmm. uh, when Deng Xiaoping opened the market. And every year they grew. But they're just reaching the point. They just reached the point. Whenever they became the world's second largest economy, I think it was three or four years ago, mm-hmm. you can't ignore the fact that they tend to shade the rules mm-hmm. anymore. But so when you talk about the Clinton administration or the Bush administration, sure. they didn't have the same problem with China. They had other problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but they could say, well, this is this is on the scale of things. This isn't a big one. I do think the Obama administration hoped that TPP would... Um, fence the Chinese in and be one of the things to get them to change their behavior. You could argue that uh, there were other things they should have done. Obama did get an agreement out of Xi on commercial espionage. So people started to realize by about 2014, 2015 that um, the game had changed and we needed to change with it. Yeah, I think it makes it makes sense. And, you know, I think companies now are realizing what deal they cut a while ago, which mm-hmm. is, you know, do you know do, do the Chinese take over their company? Do the Chinese steal their IP? Do the Chinese borrow their IP and do their own thing? I think it's unclear to me as a newer studier of this mm-hmm. that um, – I don't know if those are the right words, but um, um, you're, you're the expert. But it's unclear to me whether people knew they were cutting that deal 20 years ago. No, I think they did. You uh, do? Okay. Yeah, because people would say they had all sorts of things. The the I'll I'll keep the crown jewels away from the Chinese. I'll keep the most important processes back here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll give them part of the secret sauce recipe, mm-hmm. but I won't give them the whole recipe. And in any case, you know I'll make the revenue now and I'll put it into R and D. And so the goal should be to run faster. And by the time 
the Chinese figure out how to make Generation X, I'll be a uh, Generation X plus. Yeah. Turned out that a lot of that wasn't true. Uh, the Chinese were better at circumventing the safeguards people had at mm-hmm. IP protection. Uh, it turns out that having a product that's a couple generations behind doesn't make that much difference in the market in sure. a lot of places. Sure. So the people were thinking about it. They thought they'd identified tactics and strategies to mm-hmm. manage it. And it turned out we were just a little bit off. I, I assume you saw the Qualcomm case that, that happened. Who could avoid it? Yeah. <laughs> last whatever it was last week. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, Well, um, so I think two or three years ago, that deal would have gone through without a lot of trouble. I mean, they would have had, you know, CFIUS imposes uh, mitigation agreements on people and restrictions on what they can do. What changed is that first, um, anything that smacks remotely of China, and for some reason Broadcom had some vague Chinese connection. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other part was that um, people have uh, woken up again to the fact that we've lost our own telecom industry. We have very few companies left in this space. Mm -hmm. Qualcomm is one of them, and the idea of giving it up to a foreign acquirer, even though Broadcom is barely a foreign acquirer. Sure. It's part of the larger hysteria over 5G, what do we do? Yeah, I was going to go down the road on the 5G thing, which is next, which is, you know, is that technology we need to keep here? It actually goes to a broader question, Mm -hmm. which is, I feel like um, some of these big tech stuff is very American. Mm -hmm. Like it's American ideas, and maybe some of this stuff is assembled elsewhere, but like it's, it's part of the American flag at this point in time. You know, at what point do the do the president and the administration who are the nationalists and who say, you know what, we're going to take care of here first, realize that this these are the crown jewels for us. Um, you mentioned the phone stuff, but I'm sure that we could go into almost any other category um, and try mm-hmm. to figure out the, the technology brains that are cranking stuff out of Silicon Valley and Austin and New York and all these other places. They're ours. And that's the thing that's going to make the U.S. rock and roll. Um, yeah, uh, there's a recognition that uh, a recognition of the importance of high tech to the economy and national security. Mm-hmm. But I think we've forgotten how to do it, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like you know the third generation of inherited wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a problem I have, but I, theori- either, <laughs> theoretically but, yeah. I understand the problem. <laughs> how did you make your money? I have no idea. Yeah. and so we <laughs> we like being the tech leaders. Uh, the previous administration had something that I would call magical Googleism, which is that, you know, okay, so we have this problem, Google will fix it. Sure. And part of it was there were so many Google people in the administration, but part of it is this idea that, oh, the government's just too slow, and Silicon Valley will do this for mm-hmm. us. And the incentives are such that I don't think you're going to see big innovations coming out of Silicon Valley. You Interesting. Know, you know, you need to have people fund basic research, and basic research is research that doesn't provide you an immediate return. So we've kind of forgotten what we're doing. We're living off our inherited intellectual capital. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, well, it's bad for the world, too, because this place did crank out a lot of, if you think about the technologies that have shaped the world sure. since the 19th century, Sure, a lot of them are American. and maybe it's science has slowed down or maybe it's we've slowed down, but you don't see those 
same innovation innovations cranking out a new app on your cell phone that tells you where the nearest pizza parlor does not count as a major innovation for me it depends on what how hungry you are though let's be honest <laughs> <laughs> um, i think you're right i i also think that um I guess maybe I'm in a different place than this, but I wonder, you know, kind of who's the, f- you know, do we look at industry 4.0 and say, who's going to race there first and mm. it should be us. And to go into your point of talking about steel and aluminum and things like that, you know, it feels to me like 3D printing and AI and uh, machine learning and connected devices and all the rest of that stuff are going to change kind of everything. Mm. And it feels like we need, maybe it's the research stuff, but it feels like we need to, we now have, significant adversary in that space with China. Yeah, the Chinese definitely want to uh, dominate the standard space. Uh, They wouldn't mind dominating the innovation space. They wouldn't mind dominating the market. Now, that's not World War III. Mm -hmm. It's not China does not intend to conquer, you know, Botswana or wherever. Sure. Uh, It's not territorial. Mm -hmm. So it's a different kind of conflict. But they definitely, they, the party, would definitely the Chinese Communist Party would definitely like to be dominant, mm-hmm. and we do have competitors. We have advantages too, but it's going to be a tougher race than we've been used to for a couple decades. Interesting, and you know, this may go back to my political theory or my theory with sports. Mm-hmm. That sometimes a good adversary actually is a good thing, right? You know, kind of getting a good, you know, uh, for a while I think we were running away with technology mm-hmm. to the point where kind of nobody was really keeping up. You had Japan for a little while, you had a couple of other folks, yeah. but really we were it. It might be, I'd be interesting, does, does this create more incentive and more entrepreneurship and us to think differently and push harder and all that kind of stuff? I don't know. Uh, I had lunch with a group of uh, Chinese venture capitalists, a couple Chinese venture capitalists, uh, about a month or so ago. And when they were talking, they were talking about the competition between American companies and Chinese companies in AI. And I said, well, hey, what about Europe? And they said, oh, Europe, they're out of it, right? (laughs) And so after some pushback, they grudgingly admitted the UK has a little bit of innovative capabilities the germans can do some stuff in manufacturing (laughs) but this is this is largely a two-horse race yeah and the question for us is you know the chinese are not a democracy oh and that's terrible Mm -hmm. uh but they don't have any trouble repairing their infrastructure absolutely passing a budget or committing to a 10-year r&d program and we don't look so good in in comparison that's a political question. That's, you know, if you guys could pass a budget every once in a while. <laughs> right? So um, we could plan going forward, right? Yeah, yeah that's exactly. a dilemma. Uh, I don't know when majority rule became uh, uh, unfashionable. I thought mm-hmm. that was the Constitution. But if mm-hmm. you have uh, a situation where you say, well, we need consensus in the party before we can move ahead. Sure. You know, that's consensus is why the predecessor to the republic failed, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't need consensus. You need majority rule. So I worry about our political ability. I don't worry about our education system. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about uh, Wall Street. I don't worry about Silicon Valley. But I do worry about the political will to make decisions to compete. Interesting, because, you know, I assume China is throwing tons of money at, you know, we're talking about rebuilding bridges and roads and airports. They're talking about connected cities and smart cities and, you know, uh, know, bridges that tell tell you they're going to break before they break kind of stuff, I assume. The way I think about it is that if you 
you know, one way to look at it would be that China has, depending on who you talk to, maybe a, a $35 billion fund for investment in mm-hmm. semiconductors. Um, when the U.S. thinks about doing something similar, um, you know, maybe under the Defense Production Act or sure. maybe something else, geez, we're talking like two or three hundred million, right? Mm-hmm. Well, a billion beats a million any day of the week. <laughs> yes. um, wake up, guys. Yeah. And the answer is, well, Silicon Valley will save us. No, Silicon Valley's job is to make money, and it may not invest in the things that either are long-term or yeah. that you need for national security. So we haven't, we've got a problem we didn't have 20 years ago. And the interesting thing about that, and, and I think I'm sure all the business guys will say, look, we got to make quarterly marks. We sure. got, you know, I, I got a stock to perform and Absolutely. shareholders and all those yeah. other things. Whereas governments can look forward and say, all right, well, we, we, we are going to invest in this because we think it's important going forward. Um, do you see... Oh. And it's not big government per se. It's not. I'm not saying let's return to the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> right, Although right. some days I feel like there's some in Washington who would like to do that. Um, it's really thinking of what does industrial policy look like in a connected world mm-hmm. where innovation happens outside the government? Yep. How is it you direct that, harness it, focus it on the public good? Mm-hmm. And we don't have that ability right now. When you said before you weren't worried about our uh, education system. That surprises me. It's still, so, because a lot of people will come back and say, we need, we don't have enough people that, no, we don't have enough people who know how to do this stuff. We don't have enough people who know how to make this stuff. I'm if, if you look at the top hundred universities in the world, mm-hmm. uh, the majority of them are still American. And so some of our research universities, Stanford, Chicago, MIT, uh, there are others who I'm not naming because I can't think that fast. Yeah, right. They're great, mm-hmm. right? They're world class. They're they have no competitors. Um, so your question is: Should we be worried that increasingly the students in the classes are Chinese? And there's a couple reasons for that. The first is I didn't ask that question, but that's actually a better point, right? Yeah, yeah. sure. Or Chinese, or 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 anywhere else that that potentially gonna you know get trained in our our universities and go elsewhere. We used to we the United States used to pay people to go into the sciences. That was uh, the answer to Sputnik, and it mm-hmm. ran pretty much till the end of the Cold War. Um, fund their education, and I've tried this when I used to teach at Georgetown. I asked my class once mm-hmm. they were undergraduates. You know, if I offered you guys uh, a full ride for four years if you went into science and engineering, how many of you would take it? Every single one held up their hand. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. In fact, we tell them, oh, sorry, but we're going to make you pay fifty or 60000 bucks, and, yep. you know, good luck getting a job. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. we there's something broken here with our educational system, but the research universities that are the font of innovation – they're, they're still strong. Yeah. They're still strong. But that might be an inheritance from the Reagan administration. Right. How long right. can you coast? Yeah. yeah, no, it's a good question. And, you know, and, and how long is, is the, you know, can, how long, uh, you know, we've moved people from high school to college, right? We move, mm-hmm. you know, how long does that work? Do you have to go further? Do you have to figure out another way to educate people in the, in the middle? Is there a retraining thing that we need to really sure. spend some yeah. time on? Um, you know, I think about this a lot, you know, um, and I've done a little bit of reading recently about mm-hmm. kind of the beginning of, you mentioned Sputnik, but the beginning of kind of NASA and we're mm-hmm. going to go to the moon and all the rest of that stuff. And how much money and effort was put in by the government with really not knowing totally what the outcome would be. Right. Um, but then again, the result is the internet and all the rest of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and the Chinese have a little bit of it. The Chinese figured out, let the Americans take the risk and then if it works, I'll copy it. So that right. is in some ways... 
the answer for why their state capitalism model is successful sure. because they're piggybacking on ri American risk-taking. The downside is as we become less capable of taking risk, um, the Chinese won't know what to do and the pace of innovation globally will slow down. Oh, interesting. So that's what I'm worried about. Interesting. You know, you have to... You have to. We have to pony up serious money if we're going to stay in this race. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a change. You mentioned Russia before. Obviously, Yet. they're all <laughs> they're all over the news. You know, first of all, what's your what's your kind of general sense of of Russia now? This administration's relationship there, and then I want to get into a little bit of the Russian meddling stuff. So the Russians, I talked to uh, uh, cabinet level officials in. Clinton and Bush administrations who basically say the same thing. They've talked to Putin. Putin believes the U.S. has a secret plot to destroy Russia, that we're implacably hostile to Russia and seek its destruction. It's completely nuts, mm -hmm. but that's what he believes. Sure. So he thinks he started this as a defensive measure. Mm -hmm. You know, the Medvedev, who's his deputy, yeah said uh, a few years ago, he said, look at what happened in Arab Spring, look at the green, the color revolutions, and look at what they did, we are next. Yep. So very paranoid Russia, uh, eager to reclaim it. It's sort of a grudge match. Yeah. They're unhappy about losing the Cold War. Um, sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and so they'd like to reclaim their place on the world stage. Sure. And Putin's been very shrewd. Yeah. He's done quite well. And so that obviously dovetails right into, you know, what is top of the news now, mm. which is the Facebook stuff and Russian interference mm. in our elections and stuff. You know, you have done a lot of studying on kind of the Internet and warfare and how that mm. works. I assume this is kind of part of that. Oh, absolutely. The Russians, in fact, we should feel bad. And I feel personally bad because the, the Russians told us, you know, eight or nine years ago, hey, this is our new doctrine. It's going to focus on cognitive effect. It's going to focus on political disruption and creating confusion. And this is what we're doing. And information is a weapon. And at that point, I made fun of that. Ah, come on, what are you going to do? Drop the times on somebody? <laughs> um, and they weren't kidding. For them, information is a weapon. Sure. And they want to achieve cognitive effect. So this is, this is Russian military doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have uh, exercised it uh, upon us, and it's worked quite well. And the, I assume they're using it in other places, not just an election, which which seems to be hot topic. But I assume mainly NATO countries. Uh, oh, they've done this in France, in Britain, mm -hmm. in the Netherlands, in mm -hmm. Sweden, in the Czech Republic, yep. in Germany, um, probably other places that I'm not mentioning. I think Norway, maybe Italy. So they they. Their, their goal is to weaken the U.S., to weaken NATO, and this is the tool they've chosen to use. Sure. It's, um, it seems like a, a fascinating uh, uh, kind of new age game of risk when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. We played the board game, yeah. right? And there were actually like you had to move real pieces of things around and move a boat and whatever else, and now it's all... It's intangible, and yeah. that's what makes it hard, is we, we um, you know, we're worried... People still worry about terrorists attacking cyber terrorism against critical infrastructure. It's never happened. It probably never will happen. And it's not what the Russians are interested in. So mm -hmm. we sort of have to, they're actually ahead of us in this, which mm -hmm. is not good news. Yeah. So 
what's the solution to Russian meddling in our election or playing around? Uh, let's take it away out of elections because I really don't want it to be mm-hmm. political. I want it to be more of a of a discussion. If Russians are trying to drive conversation, let's start with that. They're trying to, th- th- you know, mess around with the way we think about stuff. Um, what's the pushback there? How do we, what, as a government, deal with that? It's going to be difficult because the Russians have thought carefully uh, about uh, the legal system in the U.S. They've thought carefully about social tensions like race in the U.S., race and poverty. Um, They realize that if they can exploit the First Amendment protections, it makes it really hard to counter them. Yep. And so we're going to have to do some work on that. And the first thing to do is to... You know, people here are worried about defensive stuff. Let's, you know, have geeks stand on top of voting machines. Sure. Um, that's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to need to persuade the Russians that this is not a risk-free game. Mm-hmm. And that means probably doing something back to them. Interesting. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that when you talk to people in the intelligence community or DOD, there's much more of a consensus that we need to push back. It doesn't seem to have penetrated into the public yet. Yeah. So... I think that's going to be the debate point is what and, what do we do back? And the what then the what is interesting because the first amendment and things that they, like that is not something they particularly care about. Um so it's not a problem for the Russians. Yeah, right. so you yeah. know you, we probably have to push back in a different way. You can't kind of meet it at the same yeah. at the same discussion point. But there's things you could do. You could um you could uh fry all the servers the in the uh what is it the internet research agency in mm-hmm. uh, St. Petersburg. Um, you could unplug uh, Russian networks from the global internet. You could uh, uh, monkey with their bank accounts, and that always excites people. You know, it should be sacrosanct. Yeah. But I have bad news for you: the uh, countries have been toying with bank accounts for generations <laughs> now, and that might be a good thing to do to them. You, there are other things you can do. Sanctions aren't bad. Indictments aren't bad. Yeah. Um, but you may need to think of some sort of. Uh, counteraction that um, would be closer to what we'd call cyber warfare. Interesting. That's totally terrifying me, but that's okay. We'll keep, we'll keep, we'll keep moving on but here. That's part, <coughs> pardon me. That's part of what this is a game of chicken to some extent and Putin feels like he can buff us. Mm-hmm. He feels that he, Putin does not have a lot of respect for the West and for the sure. United States. Sure. So he feels like we'll back down. Mm-hmm. You know? This is the bully in the schoolyard situation, right? Yeah. I mean, at some point in time, some, you, you yeah. have to you have to you have to take matters into your own hands, or the bully just keeps going. And there's a little bit of risk there, no doubt sure. about it. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of risk there, yeah. but if we chicken out, um, we're just going to see things get worse. What do you think about this um, forced localization that we're seeing around the? the globe and and people saying hey if you're selling your stuff here you got to put your servers here if you're using our stuff here what do you think about that so at the dawn of the commercial internet mm-hmm. what we could call the stone age sure um there was a belief uh that this was coming right at the end of telecom deregulation and there was this sense that we would be moving into a new world where mm-hmm. there wouldn't be borders and the internet would be this global unified force <laughs> governed lightly by a multi-stakeholder community. <laughs> and I'm know, telling by your tone <clears throat> there, maybe you don't totally buy that. Well, whether you, whether you bought it or not in 1998, it sure ain't the way it works now. Right. And so what's been happening for a decade mm-hmm. is that countries 
So they hear the Amer- Americans come and say, there's no borders and right. yeah. the multi-stakeholder model and the internet should be open and free. Sure. Open and free to foreigners means letting American companies dominate. Right. Right. And so they've said, well, okay, I get that, I get that, but, but I have laws, I have national laws, and they need to apply. Mm-hmm. And so people have been slowly pushing out their national laws. Yep. And you hear this as, well, that's going to be the balkanization of the internet. Yep. Only if people are stupid, and they aren't. Mm-hmm. Right. People are looking for ways to impose their national laws without breaking global connectivity. Sure. Whether they can make it work or not, I don't know, but they've been able to make it work so far. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you're seeing is a reaction to um, U.S. dominance of the market, uh, a reaction to the fact that, you know, we have we have we're in a we're in a sort of slow rolling constitutional crisis. Other countries aren't, and so they say, "I'm a government. My job is to protect my people, and if that means doing something online, I'll do it." Yeah, right? interesting. And you have to kind of respect that. I think they're wrong in a lot of cases. Sure. And yeah. It's interesting when the Germans talked about data localization. The people who were the most effective in complaining were the big global German companies. <laughs> that doesn't mean that people will stop. It sure. Means they'll try and think of how do I come up with rules for the internet that recognize borders yep. and yet still allow me to do commerce. Yeah, interesting. Um, and also, I suspect it depends on which country and government you're talking about, right? I mean, in, in trade agreements that carry digital provisions and things like that have to be, I assume, part of the part of the deal. That's why it would have been nice to get TPP, because it was, uh, it was um, well-written for what we needed to do on the digital side. And I think it was the right answer, the fact that Everybody else has decided to go ahead with a, go ahead with it without us. Yeah, is a hint. So yeah, people will need to find ways to um, deal with the fact that you have to have some kind of free trade understandings when it comes to the digital economy, and yep. we're only slowly working that out. In part, we're handicapped a little bit because you can't have people going around saying the internet should be open and free. For the rest of the world, our line that we've been saying now for twenty years about open and free. They hear that as you just want to guarantee the dominance of American companies. Yeah. I think American companies are going to be dominant because they they're just they're quicker, they're faster, sure. their stuff is better. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the world is willing to. So the Europeans are talking now about antitrust. Yeah, oh, right. Pardon me, anti-competitiveness. Yeah. <laughs> right, uh, anti-competitive exactly. measures against the big U.S. companies. Sure. So we're it's going to be a messy few years. Yeah, I actually think and. Uh, I actually think there's a chance we're going to go down the, the kind of too big to to tech world at some yeah. point here. I'm, I don't know what People that is. People are saying that in Brussels. Yeah. You know, I had dinner with a European commissioner, a group of us did, and one of the things she said beforehand is, well, you know, um, what would it look like if we broke apart Google or Facebook? Yeah. You know, I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but it doesn't sound yeah. right exactly. Um, okay, so I have two, la- kind of two last questions uh-huh. for you. One is cryptocurrencies. Um, obviously, blockchain is, is, is I think, a, a technology that I think people um, feel like is a good next step on uh-huh. the internet and security and the rest of that stuff. But cryptocurrencies kind of feel a little bit like the Wild West. And so when you're dealing with this kind of cyber warfare situation, right. if you add currencies in the middle of it, real, made up, new, different, What's your take on that? It's it's not cryptocurrencies don't fit in with cyber war. They fit in with cyber crime. Okay. So one of the big problems with cyber crime is the monetization of what you take. And cryptocurrencies make monetization a lot easier. You don't need mules, you don't need some sucker to go to an ATM and withdraw money. Sure. You can 
move stuff around, evade money laundering rules by using cryptocurrencies. And what's funny is that Bitcoin isn't um, anonymous enough for the criminals. They're creating their own huh. more secure, more anonymous cryptocurrencies. <laughs> Interesting. Blockchain is kind of funny. One of my rules, one of my uh, New Year's resolutions is to work blockchain into the title of every report we do. Because <laughs> there's, a, there's a blockchain effect. It's like you, you get a 20% increase in in stock price or readership. <laughs> if you can. So I, that's one of my, whether it's actually true or not, I don't know. I suspect it's overhyped. It probably is, but it seems to me that the blockchain piece, which uh, the currencies ride right. on and around, is the thing that at least everyone kind of agrees, this is a cool new technology, we should figure out how to, you know, optimize this uh, in yeah. the way that the internet, you know, people are talking about this as a future internet and that kind of stuff. I think the things that you build on top of blockchain, I think that where the currencies are, where the mining right. is and all that stuff ends up being um, problematic. That's why I made the, yeah. the, the, the difference in no, uh, that's those a good, things. No, that's yeah. a good way to think about it is blockchain and cryptocurrency are different. And we'll see where we go with uh, blockchain with cryptocurrency. I think you're going to see authorities, and this gets back to the localization point, they're going to try and regulate it. And, sure. you know, here in the U.S., we sometimes have trouble taking action in other countries, they'll just they'll just squash the exchange, you know, or they'll just close it all down. Well, will they just make it local, like like you would have, you know, we have a dollar here and a yen someplace else. Like, will they just say, hey, great, you can do it, but it's like going to operate like the same way the rest of our financial system does? I, it's just for me, it's a commodity. It's like gold or sure. hay or something or hogs bellies, <laughs> and so you're trading in a commodity. It fluctuates a little bit. Yep, supply and demand's a little different, but there's. No reason why you should be forbidden from trading in it. Okay. Um, you know, and so I think where people will go is continue to allow you to trade, but do it in a way that's uh, more transparent, um, not as useful for crime. Right, right. And then the criminals probably just find a different way to go at that point. That's usually the case. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the last question I'll ask you is, mm -hmm. and I ask everybody this, is, you know, this is a town of coffees, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and for your world, you're, you, you deal in a lot in the international space. If you could have coffee with anybody this afternoon, your schedule freed up, um, who would it be? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Been in decline for years. Sure. Well before Tillerson. Tillerson didn't help. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it'd be fun to hear what Mike Pompeo thought about how to fix the department, how to fix international relations. Uh, where the U.S. has been having problems for, oh, 15 years or so. Yeah. He would be my pick. Oh, that's a great answer. Well, hey, thanks so much for spending so much oh, time with you. us here. This is great. Uh, thanks for coming in. Sure. Happy to do it. Thank you. I want to thank Jim Lewis for coming in uh, to 14th and G this, uh, this week. He's a good guy. We hope to do more kind of in-depth, um, issue-based stuff. So if you're interested in more of this, um, or you yourself are an expert and want to jump on 14th and G and explain something important to us, um, drop me an email. My, my email is wooters at mc-dc.com, and I look forward to seeing you next time at the intersection of business and policy right here at 14th and G.